Taka Kananuma, Greenland. In Japan's Fukushima Prefecture, there is an abandoned amusement park known as Taka Kananuma, Greenland. It sits in the outskirts of Hobara, a section of the Japanese city of Date. Very little is known about this park, and its exact location is largely unknown. You can't find it on any Japanese map, as it simply isn't there. Supposedly its coordinates are known, but if they are put into Google Maps, the search will be directed to the center of Hobara. This is inaccurate, since the park is hidden in a mountainous rural area. The only major information known is that it opened in 1973 and closed two years later. Some claim that this was due to the poor ticket sales and needed renovations, but locals say that it was because of a significant amount of deaths on the rides. Miraculously, the park reopened in 1986, but struggled to remain open due to increased competition from bigger parks, such as Tokyo Disneyland, as well as financial trouble. Finally, in 1999, Takakanonuma, Greenland, closed for good. Following its closure, the amusement park was left to rot. Photographs from urban explorers who have infiltrated the area show a massive amount of decay. The Ferris wheel and the roller coaster are covered in rust. The entrance is covered in graffiti, and the premises are being reclaimed by plants. The most notable feature of the park is the dense fog that always looms over it, giving off a silent hill feel. Like the information about the area, there is very little photography and video of it. Allegedly, Takakananuma, Greenland, was demolished in 2006, and now sits as an empty lot. However, in 2007, a citizen of the United Kingdom, named Bill Edwards, claimed to have visited an untouched, completely intact park. Supposedly, he took numerous pictures that were identical to those that were taken before the park's supposed demolition, showing the same rusty, forgotten rides. However, according to rumor, when uploading these photos, only one appeared on his computer. This picture shows the entrance to the park on a foggy night, illuminated by the flash from the camera. You can barely make out the figure of what looks like a six-year-old girl in a white dress. She appears to be staring at the photographer with a serious, indifferent face. The girl has never been identified, and the whereabouts of Bill Edwards are currently unknown. The Vintage Carousel I grew up in a pretty crummy town, a real one-horse piece of crap, with a small municipal park that housed a vintage carousel since time immemorial. The same elderly guy sat in his little booth in the center, no matter the weather. I would sometimes watch whilst the ornately painted wooden horses paraded by him for the billionth time. He would always stare back at me and smile a little. My friend Billy and I used to invent names for the old man when he was out of earshot. Immature stuff like horse's ass and prick draw McGraw. There wasn't much else to do around town. The park was essentially the only place for teenagers to hang out. Billy and I spent many a weekend hearing an endless loop of gaudy organ music, which more than likely drove old Prickdraw insane long ago. Late one spring afternoon, 
we were in the park as usual, for old P.D., when he surprised us by emerging from his booth. This was a rare occurrence, and cheerfully waved us toward him. This carousel sure is a beauty, ain't she? Say, did you cowboys ever hear the legend about why each horse is so darn pretty? Enlighten us, sneered Billy. P.D. leaned back against one of his trusty steeds and stared wistfully at us. Well, the story goes that each of these beasts is secretly alive. But you only see their true form if you switch on the power after sunset. Why else do you think I never operate the old girl at night? That's a real big pile of horse shit, chuckled Billy, which made me blush a little. I was a punk, but I minded my manners. P.D. gave us both his usual bland grin. You fellas should mosey on home. It's getting late, and I'd best call it a day. But we stuck around, as Billy had decided to call the weird geezer's bluff, especially since we'd noticed that he sometimes absentmindedly left the key in the ignition of the ancient machinery. And that night was such an occasion. We waited a couple of hours until it was good and dark, virtually pitch black, and then crept into the booth and began hitting random buttons and fiddling with a rusty dial. Eventually, the thing sputtered to life, quite literally. We didn't notice the screams at first, as the organ ditty was almost deafening from where we were standing, but we could see clearly enough. On every post where wooden horses had once stood were human beings impaled, some through the chest, some through other parts of their anatomy. Some wore old clothing. Some had faces I recognized. Locals who had vanished over the years. Their cacophony was unbearable. Billy and I hugged each other, trapped in an epicenter. Somehow, over the dreadful noise, we heard Prickjaw's cackling voice. I reckon there's room for a couple more. The Oneirophage In the late 40s of the last century, after a decade of private research involving experiments with binaural beats, brainwave frequencies, extrasensory cognition, and rare extracts of a South American vine, Dr. Tomas Rosner perfected a technique whereby one could actually intrude into the psyche and see another's thoughts. Despite having exhaustively documented his rigorous work, he could find no institution that would even offer to review it. Forced to sell his invention, he found by word of mouth, among those through whom he procured narcotics, a prospective buyer, the bete noire of an old New York family, Mr. John M. Dunn. A voyeuristic connoisseur of the supernatural and the obscene, who had squandered his idle youth in the great libraries of Paris, those catacombs of departed authors, rummaging among their hordes of dusty and obsolete works, a literary ghoul who disturbed with profane fingers and the charnel house of decayed philosophies. He readily agreed to the doctor's asking price, without haggling, delighted at the prospect of exploring such bizarre novelty. Once adept at the operation of the apparatus, Dunn paid Dr. Rosner off, and under an assumed name, 
rented a shabby house within view of Sing Sing Prison. In the timeless night, while the convicts fitfully slept, with the aid of a set of stolen blueprints and his new mind-reading device, he raided their memories cell by cell, at liberty to save the forbidden thrill of thefts, molestations, moonlit homicides, in secret, without remorse or consequence. Within a month, the prisoners telling each other about the nightmares from which they had all begun abruptly to awaken, discovered they shared striking similarities. First, processions of alligators and tortoises filed through a swamp crowded with faceless people and shrieking orchids. Next, a shadow man, at whom they looked directly but could never quite see, would watch them in utter stillness from an empty house, while invisible hands probed behind their eyes as they had to stand naked, legs locked in place, unable to run away. Their compared descriptions of the house were identical, including its location just outside the walls. By mutual agreement, it was planned that the first of them to receive parole or be released would search this house out to find if it really existed and investigate the source of their troubling dreams. A few days after being freed, their chosen spy was able to inform them with a smuggled message in code that not only was the house real, but he had broken into it at night and found a gaunt, mustached man in a silk-smoking jacket, seated bolt upright, head thrust back, both eyes gaping, mouth stuck open, and a stiffened gasp, clenched hands gripping the arms of his chair in front of a scientific machine. A handwritten journal on the desk told the whole story of his adventures prying unconstrained through their psyches, plundering the haunted memories of criminal after criminal, seeking ever more shameful and audacious experiences, until finally he wrote on July 7th of his overwhelming desire to witness telepathically the next execution in the prison's notorious electric chair. Too bright. My older brother is a cop. Naturally, he has a protective instinct over me. His little only sister. I was always babied by my family. But me and Greg, my brother, had a closer bond. Whenever one of my other brothers picked on me, he would get super mad at them. When I was about 12 years old, he met his fiancée and got serious with her. I was so worried she would steal my brother away, and I would never see him anymore. He quickly reassured me, and I soon began to think of his fiancée as the sister I never had. Anyway, as I said, he is a cop. He worked crazy hours, normally coming home around 3, 4 in the morning. Every night, upon arrival, he would shine his too bright flashlight into my room. My bed is against the same wall as my door, so I never saw him, but I always knew it was him. He did it just to check up on me, I was sure. I didn't mind being woken up, and appreciated the comfort it gave me. Oddly enough, I don't think any of my other family members talked about being woken up with beams of light at strange hours. I chalked it up to the fact that I was the only one who left my door open at night. For a while, I enjoyed the nightly ritual, 
However, towards mid-January of my senior year, I was stressed. College was a looming monolith that I could not handle. My boss had me working six days a week, requiring me to wake up at 7 a.m., even on the days I didn't have school, and I needed all the sleep I could get. What was once a small, almost funny comfort to me was now one of the biggest nuisances of my life. When I was awoken by the small beam of light, I wouldn't be able to fall back asleep, and my frustration only grew as I brooded into the early hours of the morning. One night, I snapped at my brother to stop as the light appeared. He didn't answer, and I was worried I hurt his feelings. At least he would get the hint, I thought, but it didn't stop. Finally, after a few more nights, once I saw the beam, I got up to confront my brother. When I walked into the hallway, it was empty. I ran to my window, only to find my brother's car wasn't there, meaning he wasn't even home from work yet. I confronted my brother the next day. He said he stopped shining the light in on me months ago. We never figured out where the light was from. And I started sleeping with my door shut. Hey, it's Mr. Freaky. Hope you all enjoyed those creepypasta shorts. If you did, comment below which one was your favorite. Also, make sure you like and subscribe to this channel. And join the Discord to get involved with the community. Have a horrific evening, everyone. And remember to stay spooky, my friends.